Welcome to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program, bringing together the best international experts to provide original analysis on issues affecting the individual states of Africa, their international relations, and the continent as a whole. This season has lots of interesting topics in store, but first, longtime listeners might have noticed a new voice this time around. My name is Lisa Musumba, and I am the Outreach and Communications Coordinator for the Africa program, and your new host. The first two episodes of this season will highlight two research projects from the Cross-Border Conflict Evidence Policy and Trends Research Program, except for short, funded by UK International Development. Today, we are joined by our colleagues from the Chatham House Middle East and North Africa Program, Tim Eaton and Leah Dehan. They have been researching the transnational links between the movement of people and armed conflict, starting in Nigeria, traversing Niger, all the way to Libya. Tim and Leah, hello and welcome to the podcast. Could you begin by introducing yourselves to our listeners today? Sure. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name's Tim Eaton. I'm a senior research fellow within the MENA program at Chatham House. Hi, thank you so much for having us. My name is Leah. I'm a project manager in the MENA program at Chatham House. To kick things off, could you give us an overview of your research and explain how you determined your research focus and approaches? Absolutely. So when we started on this project, the big research question was really about transnational conflict or cross-border conflict. And when looking at that on the African continent and particularly from Libya, we were trying to understand, you know, what kind of access points. Obviously very complicated to understand how conflict in one place impacts conflicts in other places or developments in other places. And that was really the ask from the UK government. They wanted us to provide some answers as to how they could understand those questions. And in doing so, what we decided to look at was really what we might call a supply chain or a chain of activities which we know are connected, particularly with relation to the movement of people, uh, migrant smuggling and human trafficking, because we know that conflict in Libya led to a rapid expansion of those smuggling activities after 2011. But what we wanted to understand was how that conflict impacted developments elsewhere and how that impact then cascaded back to Libya. So rather than simply looking at cross-border conflict as men with guns crossing a border and shooting somewhere else, to understand what the deeper social impacts and changes in economic relations that that conflict created were. And so that was a few years ago now, (laughs) and we're kind of, I think, getting to some answers on it. Thank you for that. Leah, could you begin by explaining the interrelatedness between the structural forms of violence in Nigeria and the more direct forms of violence along the migration route from Nigeria to Libya? So I think going back to Tim's answer, when we started looking at the Libyan conflict from a transnational perspective, obviously one of the hardest points to start with is, okay, what does that mean in terms of geography and what uh, relationships across borders are you thinking about? And so as the focus became the movement of people, Edo State pops up as a really important focal point for this. Um, So unsurprisingly, when you look at the people moving from sub-Saharan Africa into the north of Africa, Nigerians are very well represented amongst this population, which no one will be surprised by because 20% of the sub-Saharan African population is Nigerian. However, what is surprising in this is that the people from Edo State which is between three to five million people, are hugely overrepresented in this population. And so that led us to the question, what is the relationship between the people from Edo State 
and this conflict mm. in, in Libya. Now, I could talk about this for a long time and I won't preempt the whole paper. <laughs> but what we basically looked at is what social structural dynamics are happening in Edo State that are related to the movement through Nigeria, through Niger, into Libya and into this armed conflict. And one of the dimensions to, to draw on looks a little bit at the gendered exclusion of women and of girls. And what we did is look at how this exclusion manifests itself in Edo State, in particular how it is related to forced sex work in Edo State, and how that becomes tied to the trafficking of women and girls through Nigeria, through Niger, and into Libya, and how this crudely industry, this exploitation of women and girls, has become embedded within the conflict economy in Libya, and how the exclusion or abuse suffered by people from Edo State onwards basically transforms from being largely structural, then largely direct violence, and then um, really becomes enmeshed in this conflict. I guess, Leah, in your answer, you mentioned a couple of different forms of violence there, which is kind of integral to our argument. And I think one of the things that we've been discussing a lot on the program is when does violence cross over to become conflict? And is conflict solely what we might call kind of shooting wars or armed conflict? What are the connections to other forms of violence? So you talked about a couple there. Could you talk, maybe, you know, explain a little bit perhaps to the listeners what you mean by structural and direct and how they might be connected? Without taking up about three hours on this, um, what I would say is that in order to make it easier to talk about the different types of conflict and different types of violence that we're discussing um, within the Accept Project, in the papers, we make distinctions between different types of violence and conflict. So we talk about structural violence, um, which is a violence that is experienced across the globe in all social settings, but is largely defined by exclusion. So it can be anything from malnutrition because certain groups of the population aren't getting access to the right types of food, to gendered exclusion from employment, um, which is one of the examples that we talk about in the paper on Edo State because it relates to what employment is available and uh, can lead to working in, in forced sex work. So structural violence is much more embedded within the society, but less direct, which brings us to direct violence, which is very straightforward and I think one of the easier definitions to talk about because it is direct violence. So it is from one person or one group against another person and quite often like very specifically violent in the way that we would imagine it. So it would be shooting a gun, but it would also be hitting someone in a domestic abuse situation. So those are kind of the different types of violences that I talk about primarily as occurring in Edo State and then in the movement uh, to Libya. And all of this, and Tim, you can speak about this a lot more, becomes embedded within a conflict system, which is, of course, much more defined by armed violent conflict. Leah, in your previous answer, you also talked about how such forms of structural violence are not an exception to Edo State. But what makes Edo State stand out in the continuum of violence, as you've outlined? I think this is a really important point. Fundamentally, of course, if we continue the example of the gendered exclusion of women and girls, patriarchy is not unique to Edo State or Nigeria. It's a global phenomenon. In relation to the specific situation uh, in Edo State. I think this is a really important question and it's quite a complicated one, particularly in the context of the conflict in the north of Nigeria, where common sense would probably dictate that considering the flows into Libya, the majority of people would come from the north of Nigeria because there are people currently being displaced by violent conflict there. 
We're actually writing a um, short commentary piece, which will be coming out in the next couple of months. Oh, good plug. Get it in there. (laughs) (laughs) So definitely keep an eye on that because I'll be able to go in a lot more detail. But just two things to say about Edo. I think first, this is not a new route. This route predates colonial times. There is a movement of products from Edo State into Italy that existed for a long time. It was kind of entrenched during the time of the transatlantic slave trade. And what that means is that this is a route that people have moved through, that people know, and that has existed for a long time. Related to that, I think, is the fact that the people that facilitate this movement, whether it's traffickers, whether it's smugglers, whether it's fixers, whether it's just the the route through Nigeria, are much more prevalent from Edo State. A lot of people from neighboring states will make their way into Edo if they are planning to move. And so the infrastructure, if you will, exists for this movement. And then, and this is the key point in the paper, is the continuum of violence. So we also think that all of these dynamics link people into a system where people are are used to moving, they become linked into this conflict economy in Libya, and that moves down and kind of entrenches the geographic sites into this cycle. Tim, switching gears to the Libya side of Mm. things, can you explain the mechanism through which the movement of migrants becomes a conflict resource in Libya's conflict economy? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, starting off, I mean, when you see stories in Western media about human smuggling and trafficking, clearly we see a significant amount of human suffering. And in a way, you see a somewhat caricatured version of Libyans as being almost heartless, profiteering off of what's a very dire situation for migrants. And I think it's worth problematizing that view and looking in a bit more detail. Lee has pointed towards the historic transnational linkages between Libya and other states across East and West Africa. And of course, pointing to the slave trade, but then subsequently the rise of a labor market and circular migration to Libya. This was a major thing for many African states, and particularly after Gaddafi kind of turned uh, towards Africa, this was a key feature of uh, Libya's economy. There was a large amount of, of migrant labor. After 2011, what we really see, or what I would dub the growth of a conflict economy, you see several overlapping dynamics emerge. First of all, there's a collapse of the centralized transitional process. So Libyans were unable to come to a consensus across the country about how the country should be governed. And you see a fragmentation and a localization of the security sector. So where Gaddafi had this centralized security apparatus, armed groups proliferate rapidly across Libya. And uh, today we have, you know, as many as 400,000 people with arms in armed groups. And those groups are largely organized in community-based factions that are quite local. Similarly, those communities with their ongoing disputes, some of them can be very local about who owns the land, who should be in charge in this area or that area. And more widely, there is a national level dynamic whereby those conflicts aren't mediated through a consensual process. They are basically arbitrated by the division of public goods. So these overlapping dynamics where the rule of law and security becomes localized and the inability of the state to enforce create a situation in which uh, a conflict economy emerges whereby armed groups become increasingly prominent in the economy. Uh, We see a massive rise of the illicit sector. And here, 
human smuggling and trafficking, which had always existed in Libya, from being a relatively small and pretty heavily surveilled uh, activity becomes almost industrial out in the open and you see it grow rapidly. And the expansion of that sector leads effectively to this conflict economy pulling in more migrants in seeking to reach Europe and basically becoming a resource within it, becoming a resource in the conflict among rival um, groups, local communities, and it's become a significant source of revenue, particularly for parts of the country that don't receive a lot from the central state. And so that's perhaps a slightly long and winding answer, but what we would argue in our kind of systems view of conflict is that this input reinforces um, the fragmentation of local communities, becomes a resource that's competed over, and also guards against being used as a rule of law approach. So what we see is that the armed groups who actually are involved directly in some of these activities are technically representatives of the state. And they also receive through international support directly to the government, financial support for the work that they do. So we see that um, in this sense, the, the conflict actors, if you like, are being paid both to try and stop it, but also to facilitate the activity. And um, it's created this kind of slightly regulated but vicious cycle of conflict. And in that system, that produces these terrible and horrible outcomes for, for migrants along the way. And of course, historical attitudes, elements of racism further antagonize those elements. But what we're trying to do with the work is understand this in a more social sense. A lot of the work on human smuggling and trafficking thus far has been simply about rule of law. This is illegal, so they should stop doing it. But we see these systems as being deeply socially embedded. So we're trying to unpick those relationships. And without giving too much away, what are the areas that you suggest policymakers target to decrease this violence? What we notice, first of all, is that policymakers do understand the transnational nature of this issue set. If you look at where the interventions have come from the international community, they haven't been largely to roll back Libya's conflict economy. They've come to stem the flow of migrants. So we've seen a significant uh, intervention in, in Niger through the application of EU pressure to outlaw basically the movement of people to the Libyan border. We've seen shifts in the Mediterranean, which have been much discussed in Western media to prevent the rescue of migrants, to return migrants to Libya. So in essence, I think what we've seen so far is the symptoms of the problem being treated, but not the actual causes itself. So uh, I think we would both share the view that looking only at the symptoms and engaging in the transactionalism of the conflict economy is not going to roll back these dynamics. It's going to reinforce them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the importance in the Nigeria paper of linking structural violence in Edo State to the Libyan armed conflict is not just because it influences what the conflict looks like, it also because it influences what the solutions could look like. And it challenges the idea that the conflict policy and programmatic toolbox, if you will, is the solution to addressing these problems. I think a lot of them have to do with much more transnational, connected reforms that might look much more like policies and programs that are normally considered to be part of development or be part of reforms elsewhere. And I think this joined up approach and this transnationalism not just being part of an analysis of the problem, but the analysis of the solutions is really important. 
Migration is a very contentious topic in the European context, and it would be great for our listeners to get a better idea of what the policy objectives are with your research in terms of dealing with these issues. That's clearly very true, right? And, you know, we see a very strong narrative across across Europe. It's a political touch point uh, in the UK. We see endless discussions about migration, the rise of the right. And within these discussions, the political objective is to stop it or slow it down. And that's, of course, amplified by a rule of law based approach where things that are irregular, we might say, in terms of migration are you know, framed as illegal and should be stopped. But it also provides kind of a problem for some of the research that we're doing because the movement of people is something that has happened for centuries across these transnational spaces. So we would argue that the attempts to simply shut it down aren't the right approach. But equally, when we have engaged interviewees, they've asked us, well, what are your objectives? You know, are you simply trying to stop this? And I think what we would say in response by looking at it as a conflict-related issue is that policy interventions that focus on ameliorating conflict dynamics, reducing them, and basically provide a much greater chance, of course, firstly to, in a place like Libya, provide once again uh, more opportunities for circular migration and migrant labor. Secondly, of course, they allow for a greater application of, of the rule of law And we've seen in periods where the rule of law is stronger that the flows have reduced. But ultimately, I think that um, addressing these conflict-related issues will break some of these vicious cycles that we've been talking about, whereby resources from the illicit trafficking of goods become kind of a, a necessary means that conflict actors find to compete against their opponents. And I think fundamentally shifting that system in a place like Libya will likely reduce some flows, but also do so in a more sustainable fashion. I guess the, the only thing I would add to that is that fundamentally the research we're doing is about transnational conflict dynamics, which means that one of the key, if not the key objective, is the reduction or prevention of conflict. You can have a long conversation about what that exactly looks like in terms of what is counted as a conflict-related harm or death. Um, but fundamentally, that is the core of what we're doing and creating lessons for other transnational conflicts or conflict that might arise in drawing lessons from what we've seen here. Tim and Leah, thank you so much for your time today. We look forward to the full research paper. And is there some sort of release date you can share with us for people to look forward to it? Soon. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not quite a date we can jot down on a calendar, <laughs> no. but we will be looking forward to it. Uh, so the research that we've done on, on this topic is actually going to be three research papers, uh, which is really exciting. So they will be coming out in the next couple of months. Um, yeah. So starting off with the paper on Nigeria, um, which Tim and I have written with our brilliant colleague, um, Dr. Ira Agedo, who's based in Edo State. Then the second paper will be the Niger paper, which we've written with the brilliant colleague, Peter Tinti. And then a little bit longer down the line. On the Libya paper. So I think effectively what we'll show overall is how conflict in Libya creates this ripple effect of rapidly expanding smuggling networks and how violence and conflict in Libya effectively exacerbates violence in a place like Edo and how that violence in Edo then ripples back up and exacerbates violence in Libya. So in some ways, quite a complicated story. But when looking at the transnational impacts of conflict, we think that it's quite illustrative of the complexities of how this 
how this works and, and shows how conflict can actually shift things from quite far away to consider that. I think there's a crazy statistic about Edo, about the number of people from Edo who moved in one year. This is a stat from 2017. I think it's a quarter of households had one person move or attempt to move towards Libya. Which is incredible and just shows you, I think, the strength of the ripple effects of some of these conflicts. And, and that's something which I think we don't typically tend to look at. Mm. Um, and so you can miss some of these unseen dynamics, but they create reinforcing and vicious cycles, which then become very hard to stop or slow down once they've got momentum. And then that's kind of the situation that we're in right now, I think. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this is a topic that at face value did not realize that there would be a connection between all these countries, but you can see that there there's so many linkages in in how these dynamics work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. On behalf of the Africa program, I would like to thank the audience for listening to Africa Aware. I have been your host, Lisa Musumba. Goodbye.